Well, well, hi there. Welcome to News of the World. Uh, it's a program where we look at news from all over the world. We're so excited. Uh, the accent kind of developed. I don't know where it was going. But hey, we're really glad that you could get through the first five seconds of the show. Uh, here we are to discuss the news again on the podcast that tries to do it as often as possible. The two people who drive this ship are myself on this end of the ship, uh, Mark Fonseca Renderu, also known as Bicycle Mark. And on the Berlin side of the ship, we have Tim Pritlove. Hello, Tim. Hello, Mark. It's me again. Yes. Hello. We're, it's me. We are uh, with problems finding good uh, dates these days. I hope it will change in the future. On the bright side, it gives us a huge backlog of news where we can just walk through the garden of news and pluck fruits off of the tree. <laughs> oh, really? Did anything yeah. happen? <laughs> yeah, a few things. A few things while we were away. Some things. <laughs> yeah, and I think we have to revisit a, a couple of news we had touched on. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. In the last weeks and months. Yeah. There's going to be some revisiting. We're going to look at some media because we also like to look at what the media is doing. So all of that today on the program. And why don't we kickstart it with actually a topic that we've been covering, I don't know, for over a year, probably since the beginning of this program, we've been talking Boko Haram. And I'm not saying that we're so smart or anything like that. It's just one of those issues that has gotten underreported for a long time. But while you and I have been busy over the last week or two, Boko Haram has become a trending topic, uh, not only in Nigeria, but now around the world. Uh, so it was sparked by a story we covered originally here on News of the World, which was the kidnapping of the uh, students, the, the girls, the 200 or so girls in, uh, in northeast Nigeria. Uh, so that was the big topic in the news. And that in itself is an interesting story. Meanwhile, in the last two days, we've seen another Boko Haram uh, act of, of violence this time a uh, hundred or more people uh, being killed actually the count is going towards 200 uh, again in a, a village uh, a series of villages in this um, state or where's my state listing I don't know I have it here somewhere um, they came in dressed as military and that's where this all gets very frustrating um, these towns uh, Danjara Agapalwa and Tagara all in the Borno state which has been plagued by Boko Haram they had actually asked for government help over the last few weeks for some security uh, help and so Boko Haram fighters came in dressed as military according to witness accounts saying things like we're here we're here to protect you and just as uh, they settled inside the towns uh, they opened fire on people and anyone escaping the towns there were also Boko Haram militants outside to open fire on them as they left so this is a crazy situation um, and it just seems to get worse and one of my questions, and I think a lot of people's question is, where is the Nigerian government? I mean, they respond, they react in terms of statements, but I, maybe they're being secretive. It's all very quiet on their side, at least from here, you know, looking from here. Yes, and this is still all uh, ongoing uh, while there is still this um, uh, case with the, um, 50, how many girls is it officially? 500 girls? The numbers have fluctuated. Uh, it's it's above. It was above two hundred. Uh, I've heard accounts as high as five hundred. Yeah, yeah. And I think two two of the girls actually made it out of that uh, camp to uh, to home and were reporting of the situation uh, where the other girls are held. 
um, which is obviously not that funny. But no. there's no... Well, there's also uh, a lack of official strategy of how they are going to deal with that problem because they said, like, they now know where the girls are, but they can't attack it because it would be too dangerous to do that. Yeah. So nobody knows. Yeah, it's a strange situation. I mean, not to say that, you know, having a powerful military or a capable military means there won't be any problems. And But this is a strange case where Nigeria is a a giant country with a lot of wealth, uh, a government that has a lot of resources at its, uh, uh, what's the word, use. And um, they're, it's just unclear. I mean, maybe this is because of the media coverage that only gets the little facts about when something bad happens. But I, I do not hear much from the, the good luck Jonathan administration on what are we doing? You know, what, what's the strategy? I mean, if towns are asking for help, I don't think there's any harm in actually sending help. Uh, and maybe help is being mobilized. It just takes really long. I don't, I don't really understand. Uh, and this whole thing of people being able to pretend to be soldiers, uh, witnesses say they came in on these Toyota trucks that have become kind of stereotypical around the world for, you know, ragtag military forces. Um, isn't there a way that a government who also has a ministry of information and, and has the power to to make their own media to inform people how to be careful, how to look out for fake soldiers, fake police? Um, so I wonder, maybe they're working on it as we speak, but man, if they could just go a little faster, a lot of people could be spared uh, in this whole, what's turning into an internal, uh, s some kind of a civil war, only it's just one side is fighting it. Yeah, but it's also part of this general conflict that arises in that area in Africa, as it occurs to me, uh, between this Islamic or Islamist um, yeah. parts of uh, Africa, so mainly the, the north, yeah, and Nigeria... Uh, Congo, these are all these areas where this comes uh, together. So there's always this north-south struggle that we've seen in yep. other areas too, Mali as well. Um, yep. So this is a general problem that I don't think is easily solved by a local government, especially those given you know, that area that are probably as corrupt as you can be. Uh, we've seen this in Nigeria where the theoretical wealth of the country is by far not <laughs> uh, well distributed you know right uh, also a lot of ecological problems um, uh, connected to the um, oil industry in Nigeria so the overall situation isn't good so this is just one more and I'm not so sure they really care so much about the north there are some reports that I catch in the in the press about the military having allegedly been infiltrated already by Boko Haram sympathizers. So, you know, there there may be these problems internally in the government and in, especially in the security arm of the government. Uh, but the uh, authorities deny it. Of course, they say, "No, no, we're we're fine. We haven't been infiltrated. We're not falling apart." Um, they look very fragile right now, and. Uh, I don't know. It, it seems like this is just going to continue as a rash of bad news, bad stories in the coming months and perhaps even years. Right. Yeah. We will always come back to this story, it seems. Uh, so we'll pause on that one for now. Um, here's one I saw, and it kind of connects into the stories about 
Oh, Eastern Europe these days, especially along that border with Russia. Um, there, there's plenty to say and always new bits of information coming out about Eastern Ukraine. But today I wanted to point to an article that's in Foreign Affairs, uh, I think from last week, uh, and it's about Estonia. Uh, it's actually taking a lot of quotes from the Estonian president who was hosting yet another uh, cybersecurity conference, or maybe it was a general security conference where NATO is invited. And the Estonian president goes on and on about Estonia's uh, focus and experience with fighting what they call moles and spies, basically. Uh, he, he specifies, you know, from Russia over the last five to ten years. It's actually a subject we've heard about even at uh, CCC camps. I can remember years and years ago, uh, speakers coming to talk about uh, threats from Russia to cybersecurity. And, um, you know, Estonia here is is doing a kind of a, we told you so, <laughs> at least in this article, to the rest of Europe saying, we've been working on this issue for a long time. We've caught four moles in the last five years. What have you caught? You know, maybe you should be looking. Um, and they also list this whole sort of unreported uh, world of the other kinds of violations, including military exercises where Russia along the border with Estonia does these um, exercises uh, simulating that they would take parts of Estonia if needed or if some kind of, you know, there's some kind of guise of anti-terrorism. And maybe this is all just Estonia, you know, telling their side of the story, of course. Um, but it's an interesting reality or possible reality for that country that we don't often hear from these days, uh, living right there on the edge of all this. You know, some people saying that Russia has this new imperial view on Eastern Europe, take back what used to be ours and so forth. Um, so it's kind of an interesting article, um, some, some perhaps uh, food for thought that I thought I would point to, and a topic I think you'll hear more and more about, of course, uh, mm. cybersecurity and, and how you combat this kind of strategy uh, as, as a member of the EU or whoever you are, <laughs> as the government of Ukraine and Kiev. Yeah, it's um, interesting to see that it's ex especially Estonia that that um, you know is so good because I think the the part the Russian part of their country is pretty minor. There are not so many native Russians living yeah, I mean, in Estonia. I, I think it's significant population, but yeah, they're a minority. Because, uh, for instance, in uh, is it Lithuania that has such a large Russian? Group, um, let me look it up. Lithuania has like six percent Russians. Six, okay. Yeah, that's not that much. I don't think it's very different in in Estonia. It's probably oh no, it was it was Latvia that that has twenty uh, seven percent. So I would have suspected them to you know mm -hmm. be more mm -hmm. into the uh, Russian uh, <laughs> uh, Russian spy and covery business. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, there's an old tradition, right? And there's something very Cold Warish about all of this. Uh, but they're putting it, I mean, at least the Estonian president is putting it in this modern context that you you need to be ready and seems to be saying, you know, we are, <laughs> we've been getting ready. What are the rest of you doing in this, in this union? <laughs> uh, but they, I think they also feel targeted, um, which maybe not everybody feels. You know, they, they feel like because of where they are and historical reasons that they're, uh, they're a target. And, you know, some of the rhetoric would indicate perhaps, not necessarily yes they are, but, but perhaps. And you 
yeah, you definitely don't like military exercises going on on your border that kind of make it look like you're going to be invaded. <laughs> okay, I think we should um, talk about some results that we we have been uh, projecting or yep. <laughs> waiting for. Uh, there was an election, and you know we are specialized <laughs> on elections. You know, it's our yeah. thing. It's, we, yeah. we could rename this podcast to something with the el- I don't know. <laughs> we could come up with a good name for this the the blank vote podcast or the the vote for me podcast i don't know but yeah we had a bunch of elections so we're going to pick and choose a few here because not all of them had any kind of surprising uh result there's not much to say about the for example egyptian election uh i'm not even going to talk about it this week but indian elections that was quite a big deal despite predictions and a lot of you could have said this would happen but still it happened um modi is the new president uh, the bjp sweeps to victory and for the first time in 30 years for any party they've got a majority uh, in in uh, parliament uh, which is a big deal not only that we have a changeover from the Congress party, but that they have a mandate. And everybody is saying so far that it's a pro-business mandate. They say the market is very excited. Any any big business interests in India are, are really, I don't know, I guess thrilled that this guy is in power, at least those that have ties to him. And uh, I think he just named his cabinet last week, and I was—I'm just starting to look over who's in it. I don't, of course, I don't know everyone in Indian politics, but still, that was of interest. Um, so we've got a new party, and they've got power in India, and it's going to be a shift uh, more towards business, uh, less towards the whole issue of um, uh, regulations and uh, minority issues. Uh, some said this would be. Um, an administration that's a bit more harsh towards Pakistan, which we've had a shift the last five to ten years where it's gotten a little closer with Pakistan. I don't know if that's necessarily true. I'm sure there'll be some rhetoric. At the inauguration of Modi, I did note that Pakistan sent the appropriate uh, uh, representative. I don't think it was the president, but it was a high up. So it doesn't necessarily mean all hell is going to break loose, but you're going to see a different kind of India, maybe more aggressive at least in rhetoric i found that very interesting that he was meeting with uh the pakistani president right after the election wasn't it It was for the inauguration was it yeah it was around then yeah i was looking for that in a way to see if they wouldn't or or anything you know any shift in this warmer relations uh but so far i mean it's early but so far it doesn't it doesn't seem so now modi has that that dark past uh, that he was, I think he was governor, or at least he had some power during a time where um, there were these huge anti-Muslim riots, and uh, he's said to have not done anything. He had the power to perhaps stop them or order police, and he didn't. And so that's still one of these issues that dogged him, both in the elections and I think anyone who's thinking about supporting him remembers this. So you wonder if, as president, are we going to see anything like this, this very pro... I mean, they are the the Hindu nationalist party, so are they going to be very our people versus any other minority uh, type rhetoric? I don't know. Uh, but so far, it doesn't seem so, but that's typical, right? After you're elected, right? You always say, I'm the president for everyone. And you... you, you know, <laughs> Yes. That's, that's usual, the usual. Of course. Yeah, but so it's it's a different era. Even though we knew it was coming, here we are. You know, the, the BJP era in India is back. And I remember it when I was a teenager uh, back in the day. And now uh, here it goes again. You know, we'll see what happens. Right. Mm, 
in other elections, this was a weird one, and I remember this best for the images. Maybe I read too many news sources from Lebanon, but uh, Syria had an election. Now, you may be saying, how does Syria have an election? They're in a civil war. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> they had one. Uh, I guess it was time, and Assad felt like, well, we can do this or we should do this. I don't know. And uh, even over in Lebanon, Syrians could vote at the consulate. And there are lots of photographs, I guess, because of the relative safety to be able to do so. Lots of people lining up outside of uh, the consulate there, apparently wanting to vote for Assad. Of course, you know that uh, Lebanon itself is divided on this issue, pro or against. Uh, Regardless, he won. Again, not that everybody throughout the country could or wanted to vote, but Officially, according to the government, 88.7% of the votes. Uh, this, this happened, by the way, just, just a few days ago. Uh, 3rd of June, the results came in. Uh, it's considered a, a solid and important victory for Assad. He did have some rivals running against him. Um, I guess and, it was uh, only one, wasn't it? Uh, 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 allegedly, there are two, but I can't even give you their names right now. Wow. Two rival candidates is what um, Open Democracy uh, reports, and uh, and they're not the only ones. Um, so, so there you go. He won. Yes. Um, and uh, interestingly, since I mentioned Open Democracy, they had an article by Paul Rogers, who's a professor of um, conflict studies or peace studies in the UK, and he connected this with a number of recent news items uh, that show not that Assad is the big winner, obviously this this thing is still going, but that he's really on top these days, uh, that, that there's a shift in this world, even though there are plenty of countries and certainly plenty of people who are against him, uh, there's a bit of a shift that is in his favor when it comes to not only military activity, but even government actions. And they, he cites, for example, France that initially and has been very anti-Assad in their rhetoric, like many of the international community, is now clamping down on any French uh, nationals or people traveling through France to get to Syria to fight for the rebels because they're concerned for which rebels, right? The good, the bad. Now we have these good and bad rebel uh, type rhetoric in, in the media. Uh, so they're going to clamp down on anyone traveling to Syria and and they're getting very... Uh, concerned about taking sides. They're, they're not as easily saying anti-Assad. Now it matters what kind of anti-Assad. And they're sort of waffling a little bit. And then at the same time, uh, some small stories, but significant, a lot of military orders, uh, I'm talking for equipment, and especially fighter jets from Russia, uh, have been green-lighted finally. Some of them were already discussed a year ago, and the word just came through, uh, you know, nine Yak-130s, who I, I think these were originally built in the, in the Czech Republic, I remember this name, uh, they're said to get to Syria still this year, and then there's MiG-29s that were delayed, about 15 of them, they'll be coming, uh, well, 12 of them will be coming in 2015 and early 20, 2015, so... You know, we've heard about the missiles, the, I think there were anti-air missiles that, that Putin had promised to deliver. Uh, there's a lot more coming. So at a time where I don't know how the rebels are doing, I mean, there are these mixed stories of, of attacks outside of Damascus and, and, um, and then losing ground and gaining ground. But the Syrian government definitely has, when it comes to muscle and the, and the ability to get more military equipment, uh, they're, they're doing it. And that is... If you're on the rebel side, that is a bit scary, and it just seems like Assad is is having his well is having his day a bit. You know, he's he's on top. Uh, he's not running out uh, by any means. 
Yeah, so, he is definitely much stronger than anybody would expect. He's exactly also uh, in a lot better position than was um, suggested just, I think, two years ago by uh, Erdogan in yeah. uh, in Turkey. And somehow the situation has totally changed. Now uh, Erdogan is the bad guy. <laughs> you know, uh, He's not really losing power, but he's definitely... Um, he's, he, he doesn't really have a, a home run recently. No. And uh, mm. now with... Uh, having taken the pos this anti-Assad position and effectively, you know, letting weapons into north of uh, Syria, there we have a new confrontation. Because before there was sort of a line, they had, you know, there was some uh, economic uh, ties and, you know, they were more or less they were getting uh, along with each other. But this, you know... This is no longer the case. And with a now power uh, accumulating Assad, I wonder what the new frontiers will be on that level. Yeah, I, I should mention, since I refer to the Open Democracy article, um, he also talks about the possibilities still that are still available, including if negotiations between the United States and, and actually the international community and Iran start to continue to get warmer and better, make progress, then uh, this helps in sort of uh, quieting this idea that, that Syria has a big supporter, you know, this, this number one ally. And there's this concept that if you can bring Iran closer to the rest of the world, as well as, you know, end this rivalry with Saudi Arabia, then Syria really finds itself alone, although it's still got Russia, but still that these kind of other situations could affect and help actually um, make a, some kind of a ceasefire or perhaps even, <laughs> although it looks unlikely, uh, make Assad go away. So he, he also you know, opens the door still of possibility in different ways that it could happen. But he, he, yeah, he points out, as you just said, uh, Assad is looking much better than he even looked a year ago. Uh, quite strong, in fact. Yeah. Okay, looking for uh, election results, we don't have <laughs> to go that far, actually, right. because the European Parliament elections um, have just taken place. Yeah, we had... All over Europe in uh, four days. Yeah. Including the Netherlands, which were the first to vote. <laughs> um, did, you s did you see the story, Tim, that the uh, a Netherlands media company was actually being sort of threatened. They might have broken a rule by Pop talking about exit polls. Yeah, I wonder where this information was coming from um, because it was widely distributed that uh, Geert Wilders, what's the name yeah. of the party again? Uh, the PVV. PVV? Yeah, what's party that? of the Freiheit, of freedom, the freedom oh, party. Oh, freedom, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> freedom, you love it. Uh, yeah, it's, everybody should have some. Um... Yeah, so his party was uh, not gaining, not only not gaining anything, they were actually losing votes compared to the last European elections, or did they compare this to national elections? I think they were comparing it to national elections, elections and I say that because they didn't actually lose a seat, they stayed the same, mm -hmm. but it was, it was supposed to be, and, and it did happen in other European nations, some, it was supposed to be like, you know, oh, the far right could grab more seats. And they didn't, and they did worse, I think, than they did in recent national elections. So 
at least in the Netherlands, it was seen as a setback for this whole far-right movement, which, I gotta say, has been going on for a while. People are a bit bored, at least in this country, with the far-right. <laughs> Not to say everything goes in cycles, but they had their high point about five to seven years ago. Okay, that's good news. Uh, they didn't really but, have that in, in France. No, no. And I've seen all kinds of photoshopped images of like Marine Le Pen next to Putin looking over Red Square and going, hey, we can really, you know, be friends. And uh, the, uh, the, the right wing parties in the UK, the UK Independence Party, there we have Nigel, what's his name? Nigel Fa, Fa Nigel Fa. Farage. Nigel Farage. There we go. It was right on the tip of my tongue. He's been around for ages hating on Europe. Uh -huh. And the UK Independence Party got more votes. Uh, and so again in the UK you have this rhetoric, not only from uh, Nigel Farage, but also even David Cameron saying, well, the results of this election, let's see, he said, indicate that Europe should do less Uh, you know, or curb its goals, just focus on creating jobs and stop trying to do so many things. <laughs> and I think even the Dutch uh, prime minister said, these results indicate, and they also didn't see much of a change in, in their popularity, but these results indicate that Europe should shut up and just do the little things that they're charged with doing or something like that. Like some really basic quotes. Uh, you know, it's amazing how we summarize a body like the European Union in like one sentence, you know. You should be quiet and do your work. Yeah, it's also this 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 uh, strange we and them uh, rhetoric. Yeah, no, uh, yeah. it just doesn't occur to anybody that it's probably we we're talking about here. Um, so, I mean, when it comes to, it was interesting because the Dutch uh, results were sort of pre-reported alongside mm. with the U UKIP, the UK results, and while everybody was happy, they were like, oh yeah. Red Wilders didn't make it, you know, on the other hand, it's like, oh, yeah, UK, well, we don't care. Because somehow every single UK party is considered to be anti-European anyway. <laughs> right. and, and, and that's really uh, interesting also in the, in the result of all this, uh, which we should also um, talk about. That, you know, the rest of Europe is really losing... Um, I say... Uh, Are you exasperated because the authorities were just coming by? I don't know if you heard them, but the, the police are outside. We'll just keep recording until they take me away. Uh, the rest of Europe is... is uh, yeah, what are we? Yeah, I mean, it's... it's now, now Cameron is saying like, oh no, Claude Juncker, you know, he's totally unacceptable as being the president of the commission and we have to do something about it. And everybody's like, uh... What are you going to threaten us now with? You know, yeah. it's like, oh yeah. yeah, we could exit the European Union. <laughs> like everybody's taking out the flags, like, yeah. <laughs> Don't wait so long. Yeah. Just yeah, go. Yeah. The, so the, the great uh, sorry, the the great Eddie Izzard used to say, you know, if in the European car, the UK You know, everybody's inside the car, just, you know, in there. Some people are driving France. Germany might be out behind the wheel. Everybody else is passenger seat, back seat. And then the UK is just outside going, can we clean your windows? We're just going to clean your windows. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, Eddie Izzard is a very intelligent man. I should say. Still true. Still true. Still cleaning the windows of Europe, basically. Uh, never quite inside the European car, and so now more than ever, they're they're standing outside. Uh, a couple of things, just in case uh, people don't know this, maybe it's of interest. 
despite whatever may have happened, the European, what is it, popular populist party, the EPP, is still the biggest coalition in Europe uh, with 221 seats. That's considered the Christian Democrats. Uh, of course, there's lots of ways to summarize these big organizations. Um, the second party is the Social Socialist and Democrat Alliance, uh, 190 seats. So, you know, they're... they're they're back a little, but still uh, not that far. Mm-hmm. And then you have uh, everything else is kind of smaller. You have the alliance of liberals and Democrats. Man, Democrat is the most overused word in a, in a European <laughs> Union party name. I'm a Democrat. Are you a Democrat? Yeah, yeah, I'm a Democrat. Which one are you in? Oh, I'm in with the Democrats and the Reds. Oh, I'm with the Democrats and the Greens. You Democrat? Yeah, Democrats. All right, cool. <laughs> it's just a bunch of Democrats with different names. Yeah, that's how we roll. Yeah, that's, that's just the, oh, uh, uh, By the way, are we Democrats too? Sure, we spell it with a small D and a big T. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> and our logo has a bird instead of a star. Yeah, we got, yeah, we got a Z at the end. Democrats. Yes, yeah. Democrats. Oh, cool. There we go. That's our party. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, and, and you've got like the, the, the greens to still have a few. And of course, there's different kinds of greens. There's the official greens and then there's the Nordic green left. Oh, so... Oddly enough, not to downplay anything, because I have been guilty of that before, not that much changed. But there is a general feeling, because of what happened with the far right in France, in the UK, and in Denmark, apparently, uh, there's a general feeling that, oh, well, people are very kind of shaking their fist at the EU, saying, I don't know, you've been bad. And there's different ways of interpreting bad. Some people look at the whole, the banking and the, and the, the financial agreements and the pro-business. Some people look at the, what else, the failures to to do things to help economies or who knows, you know, there's so many different ways to be upset with Europe. Um, this is the general feeling, right? I mean, that's, that's what I interpreted from the so-called international press coverage. Yeah. But, but the funny thing is that everybody is projecting it on Europe and uh, now they are sort of expressing their fear and anger on these elections, which are about the parliament. Mm-hmm. While all those decisions that under that are under discussion here are actually more or less decisions done by the council, and which is nothing but like the local governments in Europe, hmm. and 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 the parliament itself doesn't really play a significant role in this whole uh, whole decision process, and 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 that's a problem, and nobody really understands that the parliament itself is sort of. Or could be, at least in my point of view, the uh, the actual vehicle that that you know could 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 drive real democracy and probably mm. more broadly accepted uh, behavior. And um, but they yeah. are not strengthening the parliament by voting idiots into it. Yeah. And they've voted quite a few idiots. I mean, if you say nothing has really changed, I mean all those. Uh, right-wing Eurosceptic, I don't know how to call these people anyway, uh, people, they get around 20 to 25%, depending on how mm. you count. And mm. while this is still not you know, close to revolution, and I don't really think that every single one of them is just going to turn into a complete loony when they are in the parliament, um, it's... It's a problem, and it's a, it's a problem on a on an interesting uh, level because these people tend to, on the one hand, um, you know, behave irrationally, but they don't really have any significant initiative. Also, because most of their um, agenda is all about yeah, yeah, our country first, 
you know, and all those our country first people are now gathering in this European party. So what are we doing here? Yeah, our country first. No, our country first. So in the end, they are learning the hard way to, you know, get their own European perspective anyway. So that might be helpful in the long run. This is a very optimistic uh, view. On the other hand, they seem to be also pretty opposed to things that are that the Greens and, and the, the left-wing intellectual part is also very opposed against like things like TTIP, the uh, trade agreement with the US. So in that sense, it's probably not that a bad thing sometimes mm -hmm. because they tend to vote on these things in a way that is, you know, skeptic, not so much about Europe in general, but skeptic... Uh, Uh, in in the sense like how Europe defines itself within the global community and their relationship to the US. So, I don't know what's coming out of this. I don't think it's a big problem. I think it might be a, a small problem. It doesn't really mm -hmm. help moving Europe uh, forward in terms of, you know, a, a, a European vision. And yeah. helping people to understand that, that, that Europe is indeed helpful, which I totally think. Sure. Um, but, yeah. Yeah. That's it's, it's, it's also strange. I mean, this is the nature of our, our political system in this world. But uh, people like, like Nigel Farage, he, he was elected to the European Parliament back in 2009. He's been around. It's not, so it's funny when you campaign as like, We got to get over there to Brussels and show them what, you know, what real people think. And we don't like what's going on. He's part of Brussels. Okay, he leaves a lot and he gets into all kinds of trouble. Um, but it's funny when you act like the outsider when you've been inside for quite a while. I mean, to his credit, he's had all kinds of scandals and he spends a lot of his time apparently in the European Parliament demanding to know how much the vacations of the commissioners uh, cost And, you know, he's doing a lot of like, hey, you, how much does that coffee cost? And, and what about that trip you took? And so getting very much into, you know, the waste area. Okay. But uh, it's amazing how you can campaign pretending to be so different and so outside a system that you are, you are part of. Even if you're the, I don't believe we should exist uh, guy, <laughs> you're still part of it. Yeah. So you're questioning the existence of the body that you are now a part of. It's, it's, it's a very interesting kind of relationship when you become part of the, if you want to call it a machine, that you've been questioning your entire career. You built a career questioning the thing, but you're part of it. Uh, yeah, we are the Democratic Party of non-existence. <laughs> yes, I'm a Democrat. Of course I'm a Democrat, but I'm non-existent. Oh, but you're here. No, no, I'll be gone soon. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> this whole thing, we're taking it apart. That's what I'm here yeah, for. Yeah, that's, that's political existentialism. It's like, I shouldn't yeah. be here. Yeah, yeah, I, I hate myself. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if he ever has a nice lunch in Brussels and then feels really guilty. Like, oh, I shouldn't have eaten that. I shouldn't even be here. This is a waste. All right, one more bite. All right, chocolate mousse. Anyway, all right. So uh, that's more or less uh, the European <laughs> Parliament discussion. I did note one last, and it's hard to go out on something interesting, but um, in Greece, I just saw this as like an afterthought. I didn't know. Uh, a so-called radical, the term is overused sometimes, but left party was actually the biggest winner. Uh, they're called Syriza. And I wonder if we'll hear more about them in the future. They've apparently been rising 
alongside the whole frustration with the economic situation in the country and and uh, the future or the dark future, uh, and they took twenty seven percent more than the ruling government that I think had around twenty or twenty three. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's said to be a a democratic coalition of small Euro communist, ecological, socialist, and basically anti-neoliberal policies uh, party. And they're now, they're going to have the biggest representation, at least in the European Union, from Greece. Uh, Some people wonder, uh, and we'll link to the article, if maybe this means that next time there's an election in Greece, they could actually take government. But anyone who's watched European elections versus national elections, there's not always a direct link between these two things. Uh, There can be. Uh, but I don't know if it means they're going to take over in Greece, but they're definitely uh, an opposition party and maybe the top opposition party. And they're unlikely politicians uh, so far. Uh, so we'll see what happens in Greece. But I'm going to keep my eye on Syriza as a new interest topic of mine. Who are they? What are they going to do? And how did they how did they get here? So that's that. Uh Let's go to some remembering, some history. There's, there's a lot of stories these days, a lot of remembrances, usually around summertime. And I noticed the Tiananmen Square uh, articles, quite a few. A lot of them to do with photographers. That's probably my favorite subject, photographers in Tiananmen Square. I, I got lost in articles this week uh, t- talking about, you remember Tank Guy? Yeah. Or Tank Man, as he's called? And a couple of photographers were, I think they've released them before, but they were talking again now about the other shots of Tank Man that they discovered they had uh, from the street, from different angles, where he's not quite in front of the tank yet. And, uh, you know, what a weird moment it was, um, how tense it was, how amazing it was. So, um, of course, there's also other articles about Tiananmen Square's anniversary in Hong Kong. Uh, I think it was a couple hundred thousand turned out. On the other hand, in the rest of China, I think a lot of the remembrance efforts are quieted and discouraged. And, uh, yeah, the government tries not to have them. Um, but still, you know, the rest of the world, the, the independent media is talking about Tiananmen Square. So I linked to the Time Magazine photo essay, uh, but there are other ones out there, including a lot of stories about Tank Man. And I'm uh, very fascinated by the images of 1989. Even these images from before June of 89, I think around May, Time has this, where Tiananmen Square is full of people. We're so used to seeing the image of like the few tanks and one guy, but there were these days where the square was full and that is a huge square. Um, I gotta go there actually. I want to stand there, but, um, so interesting images and a a link to it in our notes. And you know, here we are 25 years later. I mean, it's remembered as a moment where reform almost happened. The reformists, even within the communist party had a potential chance and they lost, and the more conservative hardliners won, and we live in the aftermath of, of that, I guess. Um, I mean, I don't know if that's the best summary, but that's the summary I get in the media and how much of the Western world remembers Tiananmen Square. Well. What do you remember, Tim? Tiananmen Square, 25 years ago? Yeah, I remember um, it all going on and everybody was sort of expecting change to happen. But I think mm. the the um, the power with which the Chinese government was actually, you know, pounding on this on this uh, on this event was amazing to see that they're still 25 years later are still more or less able to influence the public opinion on this because people Mm -hmm. i mean okay in hong kong it's different 
Yeah. Uh, the rest of the world, it's different. But I guess in China, they've sort of succeeded in persuading people to think, you know, uh, have a double think on this. It's like, yeah, something happened. That's what the government is saying. Maybe it's not all true, mm. but we're not believing the other stories in the same way. Hmm. So, and what comes to my mind in these things, and it's probably similar in in, in, in Syria. It's it's the similar story in, in in Turkey. You know, where you also have so many people supporting Erdogan, although. What's going on is so seems so obvious to us, you know. Seems so so open, so easy yeah. to understand that when you are in these countries, you don't just don't don't see it that way because you're influenced by media, because you're influenced by um, your friends. Sure, maybe oh, you just don't want to believe. You know, you don't want to. You, you don't want to risk what you have. Maybe you risk. Know, that's, yeah, yeah, that's also a part, but it's also a, a, an an un. You know, you're not believing it because you don't really want it to be true. You don't really want it to. You know, you, you don't want to be aware that you are somewhere where things are not right, and that's something you find everywhere, even yeah. in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. True. True. Very hard to convince people to be, I guess that's that old thing of being critical of your own country or having a critical eye about what's happening even in your own country as much as you do for, for what's going on in other countries. Um, yeah. And also one more thing about these photographs, you know, there's a lot of images of the soldiers that were eventually deployed in Tiananmen Square. And at least in the Time Magazine captions, they say, you know, a lot of soldiers were, had never been in the city. I, again, these are stories. I, I'm guessing some of this is true based on who traditionally goes into the military um, or is drafted. Um, but so they were saying, you know, a lot of soldiers were kind of overwhelmed with being in the city. They had, had no idea what was going on. And you look at them, and there's a lot of images where they're sitting around waiting for orders. And they look kind of like, you know, they're in their uniforms, but they look very fragile, very... I don't know what I'm doing here. Uh, you know, and that's, to me, that says a lot. That says a lot about what's going on with people and in a country. And, you know, even the image of a soldier, like, just following orders, you know, probably kind of evil. Like, nah, just kind of had, you know, no idea what they had gotten into. But when the orders came down, you know, they, they drove the tanks and, and did whatever they were supposed to do. Uh, that's what amazes me about photographs. Like, I, yeah, there's the caption, but I find myself staring at, you know, aspects of their clothing even their shoes they're like uh, uh construction boots they're not really military it's very strange uh at least for me mm. so have a look maybe uh since it is the 25th anniversary and that brings us to our news source I haven't had one in the previous program but since i mentioned open democracy i uh, don't think i've used them as a source so if i didn't check somebody check for me uh opendemocracy.net is actually a it's not a magazine they're very adamant about that fact they're consider they consider themselves a nonprofit digital commons and actually in the old days of podcasting i used to get an occasional guest from open democracy uh there's a lot of different writers they publish creative commons uh using creative commons license they have a focus on human rights uh they are supported by donations from all over the world no one specific no specific foundation they're based in the uk but i think they also have writers well everywhere but especially in the u.s and their focus uh yeah global education encouraging what do they say good and creative writing. 
And uh, I like the content I saw recently from them. In this case, it was a, a Syria article written by a professor from the UK. But I've seen other examples that I enjoy. So I recommend them at least, you know, for the occasional item. OpenDemocracy.net. And it's a US project again? Is it? I, I think it started in the UK and now they're, they're, they've expanded to have representation in both places. So, yeah. I, I think... One of my friends who now works at The Guardian used to work at Open Democracy. That's who first got my attention there. And in the early days of podcasting, they okay. were pretty open. To, so uh, the, the official address is in London, actually. Yeah, that sounds right. That sounds right. So kind of interesting. Uh, I always, yeah, occasionally I want to hear from a, <laughs> a professor or <laughs> someone in the field, analysts, to, to sort of compare all the facts and put them together. So there you have it, another news source to add to our database. And uh, yeah, that, that basically wraps it up for today's edition of the news. And uh, let's see, any big announcements coming up? It's summertime, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, big announcement, not so sure. No, yeah, I'm, I'm working on, on, on many things, but nothing is really, you know, ready to be published where working hard on the on the Podlove project to improve podcasting, improve this podcast also. We'll yeah. see how this turns out. Nothing yeah. to announce at this point. Okay. I'm also juggling a couple of possibilities, but no announcements yet, including a possible road trip uh, journey, podcast journey. But uh, it's also uh, in the early stages right now. It would be bad luck to mention it until it's true. So forget that I ever said anything. These are not the comments that you heard. Uh, And we will catch you again as soon as possible for another News of the World. Thank you as always for the comments, for the sharing, for the tweets, for the attention, for the emotion, and all the other stuff that you throw this way. We we try to throw it back. Yeah, catch. (laughs) Bye. Bye Bye-bye.